Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor spoke with Laura Weir, who is the editor of the Evening Standard magazine. Laura spoke about working at the Sunday Times and Vogue before moving to ES, where the circulation has risen under her guidance. And she talked about the problem with pitching these days. It's a really interesting episode and we hope you enjoy it. So, Laura, welcome to Always Take Notes. Thank you for having me uh, here at Northcliffe House, which I was just saying to Neve is a bit traumatising, actually, because I had an internship at the Independent here, which is obviously really fun, but it brings back, like, first day... Oh, God. First day nerves. Yeah. Um, so, you are ES, the editor-in-chief of ES Mag, which you've been um, uh, editor-in-chief since 2015, even though your first issue was 2016. Yes, correct, yeah. Elton John. Yeah. Um, what is your typical day like? Talk me through what today would be in the life of Laura Weir. There is, li- there is no typical day. That's, like, definitely uh, the truth. So, um, my day would either start... I mean, I wake up, I get my daughter ready for school, uh, for nursery, um... I basically spend the first hour of my day wrangling about whether she can wear Elsa leggings or not Elsa (laughs) leggings and whether she wants peanut butter on her toast or not peanut butter on her toast. Um, Then she gets to nursery and then I come into work and and I usually either start with a breakfast meeting or I come straight into the office. Um, And a typical day, the first thing I do when I arrive would be to talk to the team about where we are with the issue that week. And I'm often out of the office and traveling and meeting people. So it's really important when I come in, first of all, that I get a quick snapshot of where we are. So I usually gather around um, my deputy editor, the art director and head of production. And we kind of sit and just bash through the flat plan just so I can make sure that I'm across all of the big issues that need tackling. And then I'll probably start sifting through my inbox. I get, as most editors do, hundreds of emails, most of which... I mean, I find that is a very frustrating part of my... Are you the kind of person that has to have it down to, like, under 50 Well, no, I, I can't... I, I mean, it's impossible. I would love that, but it's actually impossible. I think that people need to be much more selective with the emails they send. People treat... I find myself treating it but like, WhatsApp sometimes. Like sending, yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's essentially a hostile, invasive act, you know. You should see <laughs> it as emailing someone is not... Uh, it's, it's usually unsolicited. So, and I just... I, I don't know, I find it astonishing, the kind of the volume of emails that just uh, are not properly directed. I'm being sent to, they're not, you know, I'm not the best person to send them to. There's like lots of people on the team that are much more appropriate. Yeah. Do you um, have that thing as a boss where you try not to um, email people out of hours so to, so to set a precedent? Well, this is, I'm talking about people that don't work for me. So mm. I'm totally up for obviously my team emailing me at any time they want to, but this is more kind of PRs and people like that. Um, but yeah, so I sort of sift through those. Try I all. I think the thing is, is if I was someone that could just not reply, then that would be fine because I'd just ignore them. But I feel I, fi- I find it really hard to ignore emails, or mm. I'm sure some do slip through the net. So it does take me a while to kind of go through, especially you know, and I don't want anyone to feel bad, so I kind of email them back and say thanks for your email. Have you tried this person, that person? Anyway, so that's uh, I'm putting too fine a point on my email uh, inbox, <laughs> but that's uh, it takes up part of my morning, and then um, I will at some point have a visuals meeting during the week. Some point we'll have a features ideas meeting. We'll start flat planning issues. I'll touch base with commercial because a big part of my role is working with the commercial team to make sure that we're 
um, on the right track financially and that we're working with all of our partners really closely and supporting them in the best way that we can and coming up with new and innovative ideas um, in that space. I'll catch up with my editor, George, um, my managing editor on recruitment issues. I mean, it's just, it's so How varied. How you catch up with George? George Osborne. Um, George Osborne, yeah. <laughs> Probably, I'd say, three, two or three times a week. And how important is the magazine for the Evening Standard as a newspaper? It's really important. It's um, it's our kind of little golden egg. It's like, you know, it does well commercially. I think it is... How do you measure the readership? Obviously, it must be quite tricky in terms of readership. So we measure readership in terms of how many people pick it up. Okay. So I think it's 380,000 copies go out every week and when it's our big fashion editions it goes up to 400,000 and if you imagine <clears throat> that's one copy and then it gets picked up yeah I always two people's. or three people and left on the tube yes, so the number and also because of the visibility of the title around the city the a number of people that have eyes on that cover I mean it goes into millions because you know even if they don't pick it up they see the stacks so when we're working with agents and people in Hollywood and explaining the power of the title and um, we always do stress that you know there is no more visible supplement in the UK than because you often magazine. get kind of starrier talent to say some of the supplement mags yeah I mean but, I made um, it my absolute goal to make sure that just because we're a free title doesn't mean that the content shouldn't be worthy of being paid for so mm. it, my mission is to make the best weekly magazine in the world and the fact that is it, it the best weekly magazine I think it is I honestly think it is I agree um because it's free it's completely democratized content um but the quality and caliber of what we're offering people is as good as what they would get if they were paying three pound sixty as a cover price how important is it for you to have a big star on the cover how important is the cover for you the cover is pretty much um i'd say 70 percent of the battle i think it's a really i think it's our shot window essentially mm. um it's not always important to have a big star and i think that's the interesting thing about es magazine i think i try and represent es magazine as the way that modern media is disseminated so it's a mix of high and low it's a mix of um, things that get your like brain whirring and the stuff that you need to know to be ahead of that zeitgeist curve, but also stuff that's going to take you into the weekend into a great mood because it's you know we're out on a Thursday, Friday. Um, cover stars and content that put us you know peer to peer with with the rest of the industry. Also, you're breaking a lot of. British talent I feel like yeah like Jama, Callum Turner yeah it feels like kind of ahead of the curve as maybe somewhere like GQ or Vogue you have to have made it to be on the cover yeah and I think that that's our kind of unique space yeah. is that we are in a very lucky position to be able to have Julianne Moore on the cover one week with an interview with Sajid David inside mm. and then uh, Little Sims the next week from Top Boy she's also a musician so I think it's the thing that I think is the most important is the mix. And that's something, you know, Tina Brown and the 
iconic editors of mm. the past will always say, you know, it's about the mix. It's always got to be something surprising, which is what Martin Ivans taught me at the Sunday Times. It's always got to be when you open that magazine, something you just didn't expect, which is usually our first news feature. So in the first three pages, you know, this week we've got an amazing piece about how data is, you know, the biggest contributor to the climate crisis, essentially. Mm. Pornhub creates as much carbon emissions as, as Belgium does. You know, it's the, in, and that's a really interesting feature. Or we'll have a feature about how data is the new oil um, or about, the, you know, the cult of the one night lay that's going through London. You know, it's a real kind of stuff that you should know about if you live here and stuff that we feel people um people deserve to know so we we try and deliver it to them in the best way possible so what would you say is the quintessential es mag feature does it always need to be quite london focused i think london is a global city so by its nature the ideas that we write about and the the stuff we reflect um you know if we were to hold a mirror up to what was going on in the city socially um politically economically it's not a kind of parochial lens, you know, it's a mm. big global, big global lens. So we do tackle global issues like our data is the new oil to refer back to that. Um, but then we will do pieces, you know, brilliant take home service led features like the eight things, you sh- the eight restaurants that sh- London chefs love or, mm. you know, where to the best, you know, late night bars in the capital, things that, you know, people will find useful and, we have capital gains at the front of the book which really sets the tone tells you where you should be going in the city that week so we we do definitely service the london reader but i think by its nature the london reader is a global thinker so Mm. we try and deliver content within that there's some some well what i hear a lot of quite a few journalists say is that they kind of find it irritating that a lot of especially supplement magazines um are kind of obsessed with pegs and like a lot of features have to have a peg be that a survey or um you know when I wrote for Sunday Times I'd have an idea but there'd have to be like some relatively maybe a small survey to get to and sometimes your surveys are like absurdly irrelevant but as long as you've got one in the first paragraph then it's all good you can write the feature um is that something that you're wary of and is that something you really think should exist or that we should have a bit more freedom of just writing about stuff that's interesting even if there might not be newsworthy I think that pegs. the <coughs> traditional conventions of journalism still stand and I think it's it's important to operate within frameworks of things like pegs because although they are frustrating for freelance journalists or people pitching or writing um, you need a way in and you need a reason to anchor you know why you're writing about it at that but time it's not something I notice as much in monthly um, like Condé Nast magazines, for instance. Yeah, I think it's whether or not you have the news. I think yeah. the news angle is the thing where the peg comes into play. I think if you're a style title, um, then less so. And I don't think that a peg, I mean, definitely from my perspective, a survey of 200 Londoners about, you know, how they have sex by Durex or what, you know, <laughs> that's not necessarily going to be the most robust, yeah. um, you know, not to criticize any particular brands but a brand conducting a survey to prove why they should sell the products they do is not something that would provide a good enough peg for an an evening standard story Mm. because you can sort of see through those things but certainly it's interesting if uh, a survey comes out that tells you some information you didn't know but I think that it's a way of filtering and 
The issue is, is that there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of brains that want to express information and write information. And it's really important that you have ways of kind of systematically cutting through the dross and going, oh, okay, so not only does she think that it's interesting that, I don't know, more people are wearing leopard print than ever before and she's seen it on the catwalk and she's seen it on the street, but she's also got this survey which says that leopard print cheers everyone up Mm. by 80%. And that gives you that kind of nice, well-rounded three-point trend situation where you go okay actually maybe we should be reflecting this Mm. so I think a peg is important because otherwise it's a way of bringing newness to an idea or a fresh angle yeah um because there aren't that many new ideas (laughs) (laughs) I know tell me about it um how when someone pitches to ES Meg obviously they'll probably pitch to your commissioning editor or features editor but do people pitch direct to you and will you take on pictures from your inbox um, people do pitch to me. It tends to be people that I know. It tends to be people that I have relationships with, writers that I have relationships with, or PRs that I have relationships with. But generally speaking, the best people to pitch to are Anna Van Prague, who's our deputy editor, or um, Henry Jones, who's our features director. They're probably the best people to pitch to because they are, and that goes back to my point about the emails earlier, you know it's far more useful to go to that person who kind of looks after that patch rather than me because they're literally at the coalface of it, doing all the work, trying to deliver the ideas. They're the ones that are looking for what you've got, not necessarily me. Have you seen a decline in the pitch in general? I've seen a decline in the good pitch. (laughs) Not necessarily the pitch, but the good pitch. I think that, um, you know, a really well-formed, pitch with a headline idea an amazing sell or stand first um a really strong intro first par some anecdotal experience telling us why we absolutely have to write this i think the people sell themselves less than i would have done when i was starting out i think you know i always remember being in conference at style magazine and having to really sell my ideas as if they were the best thing you had ever read in your life and if you didn't let me write it then we would be making the biggest mistake of our you know publishing careers like you would have to push and push and push for your ideas to get heard and as such you became completely passionate about making sure that your pitch and your brief and your idea was just completely amazing um and now I don't know if it's because there's such a variety of medium and there's such a it's such a crowded market, but I definitely noticed that there's a laziness that's crept that's crept in. You know, I would never think of sending a pitch without a headline idea. I'd never think of not explaining to the receiving journal, you know, editor why if they didn't run this it would be a massive mistake. I guess they're trying, I guess a lot of freelancers feel they don't have the luxury of just spending hours and hours or even a day on one pitch that just might not get taken up when they've yeah. got to make money and they've got to fire off 10, I don't know. I mean, I it would be exhausting, the idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I think that's a necessary evil of, if you're choosing that career. Yeah. I think it's also to remember that you know a good framework a good pitch framework can be tweaked for different titles so if someone comes back and says no 
you just make sure you tweak it properly for the next person but you can still use the same pitch you just change the dear whoever because mm. I've had that before you know <laughs> wrong editor um and you know tweak it as to why it'd be right for that magazine um but I think you know yes it's probably a hassle but it's a necessary it's worth it yeah so tell me about how you came on board yes magazine so it was was the readers they wanted to redesign it and they chose you to be the right person to lead that in, at that redesign like what, what came first no they didn't and they I basically they there was a, an editor here who had left and they hadn't had an editor for a few months they've been looking and interviewing lots of people so I don't know if I was the first choice um so were you headhunted yeah so I uh, received an email um saying could you please come in and be interviewed for this role and I was at Vogue British Vogue at the time what um, was your title their features fashion features fashion. editor and um you hadn't been at Vogue for that long no I've been there for a year from the Sunday Times so how was it a bit um confusing getting that email and just in terms of like you were probably thinking of staying on a bit longer at Vogue which for um, some is like the pinnacle of the fashion industry fashion yeah journalism yeah I mean I I had at Sunday Times style I was in a more senior position at the Sunday Times and I took a slight title demotion to go and work at Vogue because I you know I was like oh, I have to go and work at Vogue and see what it's like what was your title at Sunday Times uh fashion features director but I was also writing across the paper and, and your wardrobe mistress wardrobe mistress so I had a lot of different I was responsible for lots, lots of different, different mm. yeah um and so I got the email when I was at Vogue and I, don't know, I wasn't surprised, to be honest. I just, I thought, this sounds amazing. I'll go and meet them. I and then I, I went and and met them. And Who was your interview with? Your most my interview was with um, the proprietor of the Evening Standard, Evgeny Lebedev, um, Amal Rajan, who was at the time editor of The Independent, mm. um, and a member of the board of the company. And I went in, I met them, I spoke to them about, you know, they asked me what I what I thought of the title, what I would do with it. There what did was, you think of the title at that point? Um, I'd always loved ES Magazine because I grew up in London, so it'd always been a fixture of my life. Um, but I felt like I could make it more reflect, reflect the city better. Do you think it's got it's targeted a younger audience demographic? I think it's targeted a slightly younger dem demographic, um, potentially. But I think more than that, it's targeted a more diverse demographic. My whole my whole brief was that it deserved a redesign. I think that was the main thing: is it deserved a redesign and it deserved a kind of a little bit of a shake up mm. and to be relaunched back into the market because I felt like it had been such a fixture on the London scene for so many years um, that people had forgotten how amazing it was and its potential. So that was kind of where I was coming from. Um, and I, I always found like completely compelling the, the power of reaching so many people no, I thought it was amazing that I was at Vogue, you know, the institution and legacy icon that is Vogue, yet ES Magazine would reach more people. Mm. And I always found that an, ama an amazing opportunity. What do you think was the most successful change that you brought to ES, ES Mag? I think I, I got people talking about it again. And I think that's 
really important. I think people started to notice it again. Through the through the, the quality of it or through marketing strategies? There's, there's been no marketing really. So yeah, just surely through um, the people that, you know, getting great talent, that it looking really good, getting the mix right, bringing on new writers, making sure aesthetically it was competing visually with what brands were producing, with what, you know, the sophisticated taste that we see on Instagram, with, you know, just, just leveling up. How nervous quote, were you before... Um, Oh, to quote who, sorry? You know, there's that song, is it Ciara, Level Up? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I did, yeah, I think Carter. that basically it was it was an amazing, it's always been an amazing magazine. It's had different personalities under the different editors it's had. And under each one, it's had an amazing incarnation. And when I joined, it hadn't had an editor for a while. Yeah. So it had kind of just, you know, been cracking on on its own. And I think it just needed to be re-identify like, re itself, essentially. You also have a column for yes. um, Evening Standard, how I always just think how exhausting it must be to generate ideas for a column every week. Yes, yeah, probably uh, the worst thing about my job. <laughs> <laughs> how and and you must also feel pressure to mine your personal life and share opinions that maybe you wouldn't necessarily feel that comfortable sharing. Mm -hmm. um, you've talked about your experience as a single parent. You've talked about Meghan Markle, which I know whenever. Female journalist writes about Meghan Markle. They get such vitriol. Like, ha how tricky is that for you to decide what you want to share, what you don't want to share, and how much you feel that like you have to share just because you've got to have ideas every week? I think if you're um, if you're offering yourself up as a comment writer and your brief, um, so my brief within you know that doing that part of my job is that I talk about being me, and I think that that's yeah. the important thing. I think if you're in that. If you're taking that space, I do it every other week. Um, you do have to be game for, um, you know, what is expected. Otherwise, just don't do it. There's no pressure. You know, if I didn't want to do it, I'd, I wouldn't have to do it. Um, so whose idea was it to become a columnist? George and I had a had a chat and we thought it would be a good idea. And because it's good for the magazine to feel like readers can know their editor because a lot of the time editors are kind of in the kind of gilded yeah castles, I think right? perhaps that yeah I mean I think perhaps that was part of it and also that um as a as a voice and a profile that that was a that was a good decision yeah I think that's probably yeah you're probably right I haven't actually didn't actually give it that thought but um I think I think you have to be prepared to share parts of your life that's part of the game. Is there anything you've regretted sharing? Um, I've regretted sharing a couple of things. Um, but I think overall, I do try and make sure that I put some personal checks and balances in and I don't overshare too much. Mm. But then you have to be aware of, you know, if you've got an Instagram platform, you're basically and you put your kids on Instagram, on Instagram stories, and you share kind of most aspects of your life that you are, you know, it's like, do you do that and then not write about it? Where's yeah. the line? Um, I just tend to just go with my gut. And if it feels right when I'm writing it, then I think generally think it's okay. Do you get a lot? I noticed you didn't have, you don't have a Twitter account, no, but I, you used to. I used to, yeah. So is that because you can't deal with... I find I found I sort of fell out of love with Twitter and the auto um 
what's the word? It's autodictats, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's like an echo chamber for you sort of follow the people's opinions. You want to reinforce your own or or perhaps learn other opinions. And I, th I see its place certainly in the landscape. And I think it's a useful tool culturally. Um, but for me, I would get a substantial amount of trolling and from your opinion pieces. Yeah. And I think generally, you know, not to pay, play the where is me women in the media card, but I think you are you are sort of fair game. Um, Do you notice a discrepancy between the kind of feedback your male colleagues will get when they write a column? I don't notice. I haven't looked. <clears throat> I've never looked into it. But um, there are other reasons I came off Twitter as well, because I just felt like I was having to manage too many apps and accounts and I felt yeah. for me personally Instagram was much more in keeping with my um the things I enjoy you know visually I enjoy that as a, a social media platform and Twitter just for me became repetitive and slightly toxic so I just came off that a few years ago now um but I do see it's still got a place and I know yeah. so many people just absolutely love it and I totally understand why but I just think there's only so many places that you can manage and express yourself and edit yourself and you know it just becomes quite a lot to to handle I think in terms of agreed you know the day-to-day -day career the Instagram the Twitter you know the podcast the yeah. all of it I have so many blocked words on my Twitter account oh because do you? I, got, I didn't I used, even know you could yeah <laughs> words I can't repeat out loud but yeah because I got so many troll <laughs> trolls coming after me after I wrote about Nicki Minaj ah. or the barbs um let's talk about Vogue a little bit mm. so um when you got that call to yes mag was there any part of you that was conflicted yes I remember being conflicted because I thought my god I'm so lucky to be at Vogue and I think it's that symptom of having um you know such a, a well-respected title it's held in such high esteem it really is for most the pinnacle of kind of where you could get to in your career and I was very torn between having just really arrived and leaving to take this new opportunity well do you still read Vogue now yeah what magazines do you read as well as Vogue so I get most magazines to my office on subscription which is one of the best bits of my job um I read all of the supplements what would you read for pleasure I like Atlantic Mm. the Atlantic I like the New Yorker takes about months to read every New Yorker yeah. though <laughs> makes me feel dead clever <laughs> I, that. I like the Sunday Times magazine yeah. I think that's that's probably the best other, I suppose you have other like a loyalty as well in the market <laughs> um, Are they, who is your rival supplement well I always think that our rival is anyone that anything that distracts any your attention you know I think that in terms of what the market are doing there isn't one particular magazine that I'm sort of, you know, that gets my goat every time I see it because I think, oh my God, we should have got that. I, I feel incredibly lucky and confident in my position here that we, I feel that we are leading the market in so mm. many ways and we, we're doing things our way. And, and as such, I don't, um, there isn't a title where I think, oh God. Oh. But saying that, you know, there are instances when that happens, you know, I think that people have great ideas and, you know, my friend Johnny Heath at GQ launched GQ Hype. I thought that was a great idea. Um, I think the Sunday Times 
magazine, do some brilliant concept covers. Um, I think that, just trying to think that there's been a couple of moments recently, I thought, yeah, credit where it's due. And that's, and it's brilliant because it makes a more exciting landscape to work in. There's no point have if... have a bit of competition. Well, yeah, yeah you, I mean, how boring if you don't have yeah. it, you know? I kind of want to be trumped on exclusives and trounced on ideas. I, otherwise, it's, you know, it takes the fun out of it. That's the whole point. Are there any other editors in Britain that you particularly look up to and learn from still now? Martin Ivans at Sunday Times taught me a lot, um, as did Tiffany Dark, um, who was my editor at Style. Best advice? Um, well, Geordie Gregg once told me just never go over budget, and I think that's really good <laughs> advice. That's probably quite <laughs> crucial. <laughs> and have you? No, I'm actually really good on my um, on my budgets. I take great pride in um, making sure that I stay stay on budget with my editorial costs. Have your budgets increased as your? I don't think anyone's budgets have increased <laughs> in any. <laughs> any part of the of the market um that i know of mm. okay in terms of where vogue was when you left obviously I, I don't know if you've read the um fascinating new york mag piece about kind of the future of condé nast mm-hmm. which kind of talks all about how it's like this the future of where yeah basically it's future and how it's going to navigate dig- digital it's kind of got its fingers and lots of pies but also in through doing that has kind of diluted some of its core brands a bit because they're kind of um, centralizing teams and so the essence of brands has been a bit lost which is debatable is that something that you were worried would happen to Condé Nast when you were about to leave did you think that was a good moment to leave because maybe Condé Nast was not in its best best shape no I had no sense of that whatsoever yeah yeah I I I um I I had no sense that I was I was leaving something that wasn't in its best shape. I was I was leaving something that felt quite you know stable and exciting. And I hadn't been there that long. You know, I'd only been there for a year. And I think it takes you six months to kind of get bedded in somewhere anyway. So now I didn't feel that. So do you think that it's just that people love kind of predicting the doom of glossy mags? That people kind of revel in it somewhat. I think there's unduly. a certain. That's a cert- one narrative, definitely. I think that people have been talking about the demise of print for 15 years, 20 years. Um, so I'm sure that comes into it. But, um, yeah, I just think that, yeah, I think that that's definitely one, one part of the narrative. And I think everyone is navigating the market the best way they know how. Mm. And it's a challenging place and it's an interesting place and things are changing all of the time. And then we all are doing our best to service our readers in the you know with the best products we can possibly produce. What were your favourite stories to work on at Vogue? Um, so Giselle, I was interviewed your first. Giselle. Oh, that yeah. was great, and she was brilliant. And that was a whole. That was kind of a nice, neatly tied up memory package, you know, in terms of like an experience because I. I researched the article, I flew out to New York, I was on the shoot on set with her and the stylist and the photographer. Um, And then I stayed behind, I interviewed her, then I had to turn it around really quickly. And it was my first Vogue cover story. And she was such a dream that it it made it kind of a pleasurable and interesting experience. Do you miss Um, interviewing 
celebrities? I don't miss writing actually at oh, all. Oh really? <clears throat> no, because I, I'm a much better editor I think than I am a writer. I've always been a good editor, um, but writing, I'm not one of those people that has words within me, you know, mm. that I'm desperate to explore and express. It takes me, doesn't they don't just trip off the tongue, it takes me a while, I find it quite a long process. Um, whereas editing it comes very naturally to me. Do you edit the cover stories at ES Magazine? I proof every page of the magazine, yeah. So something I probably should stop doing because it's, like yeah you know I, I kind of think that that's why that's part of the reason why ES magazine is is good is great because it has so, so many eyes on the proofs you know like I do proof every single page and I don't know many editors that do that but I'm sure there you know there are definitely still some what's been your favorite cover for ES mag oh god it's probably my London United covers after mm. the Grenfell tragedy. Um, I wanted to try and show solidarity and support. Um, and I enlisted the help with my amazing team. You know, it's all a team as well um, of some great creatives. And we created a series of London covers celebrating London um, and London's united spirit in that moment. And that was definitely a career highlight, a personal highlight, um, and just a really amazing thing to be involved in. How important is video for you? You know, if there's some great little concepts like the this or that um, interview segments with your cover stars. How essential is that? I, I suppose when you're doing a weekly, like it's just so much work already. You don't have time to think about like, Condé Nast style video concepts. You well, know. I think that's the important thing for us to remember is that we have, we are in a weekly environment, so we are already kind of super pacey and mm. trying to churn out a lot of content in a very short space of time. But for me, I'm always looking at how we can push ourselves to be better and offer more. And I don't think you can, you know, you can just print a magazine. Of course you can, and, and that's fine. But I think that you know why not try and do some great video as well and so um we've just launched our this or that franchise um and i love video content when it's done well i think it can be really terrible if it's done badly um excuse me um so yeah i try and make sure that we have we we get some video content every week um from our cover stars especially and i think it's another way of you know bringing the magazine to life and for people that don't live in london for example that can't get their hands on the hard copy. Um, it helps us elevate and reach a you know a, a wider, more global audience through our website and through our video content. So it is an essential part of the ES Mag brand offering. Mm. And so we're kind of going back chronologically. Um, uh, how did you get into the industry? Did you go to university? Yeah, so I went to uh, the London College of Printing. Okay. And I studied journalism. And then I... Do you think that was useful? Yeah, 100%. Did you do it at City or else? Oh, sorry, uh, you studied yeah. at that, yeah, yeah. So it's now uh, London College of Communication, okay, I think yeah. it's called. But it was called London College of Printing. I mean, I started started off um, there. And then I did a million internships, like loads of internships and then got my first job on a trade press writing about DIY 
actor. That's my first job. Um, I remember Eleanor Mills saying that she started writing about tires. I think she worked for like yeah. a, and she said it was like the best way to cut your teeth because you're forced to make something that you're not interested in interesting. Yeah, like exactly. And also it, it forces you just to learn the codes and conventions. Mm. You know, you have to be able to report on buttons as, as they are, you know, coffee cups as as you would write about the chair industry as you would write there's the same you use the same um you know hierarchy of information you use the same sort of news value structure when you're doing a news story especially a trade news story or a news story for the paper the structure remains the same mm, and true. the subject just changes um so it's an amazing place to cut your teeth and it's just really, really good grounding. That trade press is such a valuable part of the market, I think. You know, like Cage and Avery Bird and, you know, Retail Week, Property Week. You know, there's a there's a trade press for everything. And I think that we should try and support them, support those titles more because they are not only a breeding ground for talent, but they're a breeding ground for expertise and niche knowledge, which I think is, is, is a really interesting space actually in the future. Um and reflects in the rise in popularities of journals actually those kind of like you know plant magazine or mm. the gourmand where people are kind of narrowing their field of interest and field of vision into th and specializing and i think that trade presses are the progenitor of that idea um have you noticed journalists coming up in the industry have become kind of um a bit more spoiled and a little bit more like i don't want to write about that that's not kind of worthy of what i want to write about and uh, are less willing to do the task that maybe you would have done as an intern and been happy to do um i certainly i, I don't know if it's to do with i wonder if it's a cult or like a generational thing but i and this isn't a good thing but i certainly feel like when i was interning i would have done anything you know literally anything like I was like a caretaker when I was an intern like shifting yeah shifting stuff I mean around. I remember writing so many envelopes using a like a solvent marker for hours so long in a cupboard with no ventilation that I just passed out <laughs> did you actually yeah I passed out and was there for hours on the floor like two hours on the floor woke up you know completely sick yeah and I didn't tell anyone because I was just so worried that they would That's think awful. badly of me. But I worked and I worked so, so hard. Nothing was too much. No hours were too long. I wouldn't have like even occurred to me to ask to be paid or to get a byline or to say kind of what's in this exchange for me. Um, I'm not doing your transcription. Yeah, well, you know, I was like, yes, yes, of course I'll do your transcription. Oh, my God, she asked me to someone. do her transcription. You know, I, I, I honestly thought that you know, and I've thought this anyway at every stage of my career that in that moment I'm the luckiest person ever. So I just completely threw myself into it. And that that's not a great thing. You know, there are great things to that approach. <coughs> Excuse me. But there are, you know, now people have a much greater sense of self, boundaries. At Vogue, can I say that I shared a chair with fellow interns? We had one, ch one yeah, chair. one chair to perch on. No, no, but to share with another intern we had one chair to share and a computer because <laughs> there were three interns because Vogue had that like revolving intern thing yeah. where there was like head intern and I remember and like that's mental I remember everyone in the exit interview would be like I think we should have one more chair <laughs> <laughs> it becomes such a big deal doesn't it those sort of details I'd like more pens if that's okay um but yeah I mean I think now people have have a greater sense of their personal 
worth and boundaries perhaps mm-hmm. and um you know I've certainly seen a shift in that for sure I think also maybe just millennials are maybe a little bit more entitled with what which can be a good thing just in terms of like what they deserve um yeah I mean I think what they deserve and also um I think that there's a and self-respect has become a much bigger thing of the last yeah exactly years. you know to have to have this sense of self-respect it was never a thing you know no. you didn't need it to you literally flattened you yourself never, you just sort of got on with it but I think that um well, there's also the argument around time and patience and mm. I think that that was a different thing as well so we live in a fa- it definitely feels like a faster world more opportunities more places to go more places to work more people to see more people to talk to more pictures to post do you and have interns here yeah, we have interns here. And I think that we, when I was interning, you do it for a time, you move on to the next. Whereas I see the interns here now, it's like, you know, they want bylines. They want to be visible. They want to make the most of the opportunity. I mean, it's great. I think it's amazing to have that hunger and ambition. Mm. And, you know, actually, I'm not just going to piss around in, the, in, you know, doing this when I could be making the most of it. So I, I think it's a good thing. So do you have paid internships here? Yes, we pay expenses okay. and travel. And how long are they for? I'm not actually sure because I don't organise them. That's terrible, isn't it? But we <laughs> follow the legal guidelines. I think there's a guideline that, that's that a good recently answer. came out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we definitely, you know, we made sure we fell in line with that. And, um, and Neve, who yeah. you've met, organises that with the desk heads because they, I, I don't use interns, but they... they they work with the interns and the interns come and help and they work in the cupboard or they do research and we try and give them as many opportunities as we can. Yeah. Okay, so after you studied journalism, then you worked at the trade magazine and then where did you? It was then you went to Draper's. So then I was at Retail Week. I interned at Draper's and then I worked, got a job at Retail Week. Then I went to Draper's and got a job there, which is fashion because I'm a girl I liked fashion we so when say I look back you know <laughs> like I'm being sarcastic um I was writing about tires and bolts and nuts and cladding and DIY and then I got this job um at Draper's so then I went and my I worked my way up there to a desk editor role I can't actually I think fashion editor and then I left there and went to work at L online to do a maternity cover and that was kind of my jump because there was always this thing of well, you'll never get out of trade once you start in trade to move into consumers really hard and you usually have to go the paper route <clears throat> so I moved over to L online did did a cover there then when that ended I had a brief stint working for um, Hamad Al-Fayed and Kokoza which was a retail business he owned and then from there I went to Sunday Times style I got a call from Claudia Croft um and she interviewed me and said I remember I was on my way to the Brit Awards with a friend and she rang me I just my mind was blown and then so I went and met her and Tiffany you headhunted for that role as well yeah gosh you've been lucky not to have to apply to many jobs do you know it's like my biggest anxiety I've never had to apply for a job never (laughs) not in this career I mean I've applied for loads of jobs I've been working since I was 15 so I've applied for lots of jobs but I've never applied for a journalism job no do you feel like you'll ever move across the pond and ever edit an American magazine I'd never say no 
I'm always open to... Is that always the big ambition for kind of every British editor? I don't think so, actually. Not that I know of. Um, I think that everyone's got their own ambitions, haven't they? Certainly not not an ambition that I know to be a universal mm. one amongst British editors. Is there a magazine in particular that you would love to work on? This is all very hypothetical. You're obviously very happy here, but... There isn't actually. I know that sounds um, not true. There isn't one that I think, oh my God, I would love to edit that magazine specifically. I think that there's a myriad titles that would be exciting opportunities to work on, but I honestly think ES Magazine is the best in, you know, I think the weekly supplement space is really interesting space and I think ES is the best one in that space so and three quick questions uh, before we have to wrap up what has been your biggest failure that you've learned the most from I maybe as an editor I think my biggest failure last year I, I burnt out quite badly last year I I would, was definitely exhausted by the end of the year and when I say badly like you know I was fine but I definitely noticed that I had pushed myself quite hard and I think my biggest failure has probably been not taking enough care of myself and focusing on the job I would say so I've you know it's not that I, I don't focus on the job it's as much now it's that I focus on myself more yeah um I've just kind of stepped that up um because it's you know is it's it's not brain surgery it, you know I'm not I'm not on call but it's it's a stressful job and I think of course I want I, I'm such a perfectionist and I and I give myself a hard time if I'm not doing the best and I think last year that bit me on the ass so I've kind of learned from that and obviously apart from ES mags work what would you say was kind of some of the best either the best editorial campaign or the best editorial launch or just the best cover that you've seen maybe over the last year in magazines oh not not ES not Um, ES which obviously How's the best? Oh, there's so many, aren't there? Good ones. I, I'm, I'm just trying to think recently what I really liked. I'm sure when we wrap this, a million will come to me. I like that Donald Trump impeachment cover. With, I think it's the New Yorker recently. Just him sat under a big peach. That just <laughs> comes to mind because it was recent. Um, so yeah, that was a good one. Okay. And what have you just been proudest of in your entire career? Or maybe more specifically, yes, Mag? What am I proudest of? I'm proud when I see people reading it and people commenting. It's amazing sitting on the tube. Do you do you just do you take the tube? I'm actually really claustrophobic, so I tend not to take the tube. But I see people picking it up on the mainline train station um, that I commute from, and I love seeing people read it. I love sitting next to people reading it, and and they open it, and I'm my picture's there, and I think I'm that person, and I'm sat next to you, and sometimes I'll like tap them on the shoulder and chat with them. Oh, cool. <coughs> do you notice? stuff like how long they spend reading every article yeah like I totally I start, forensically watch yeah. how they read it and how long it's really they really interesting yeah. yeah and I, well, I was sat next to a woman and she was I'd say she was about 55 and she was reading it she's like really pouring over my Ed's letter and I was so chuffed because I always think people just sort of like skip by that page and I asked you know I said oh that's my that's that's me 
And she's oh my god, I love your magazine. It's oh. so great, you know. And that's a really that makes me very proud. What about when you see people not just leave, not leaving it on the tube and actually putting it in their bag and taking it home? Yeah, that's the winner. That must be, yeah. When you see people Instagramming, you know, my weekend with ES magazine or like yeah. a Sunday bath reading ES magazine, you know, they've taken it out of its, you know, natural frequency, which is Thursday, Friday. And they've thought, OK, I'm taking it home. I'm putting it in my bag. I'm going to read it at another time and, and really building it into their lives. I think that's an amazing thing. Do you keep every copy? I've got every copy, yeah. What, what do you do with them? Neve stores them for me somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> for the, you know, Until the time really. is right. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you. You've been a brilliant guest. Thank you for thank having you me. Thank you so much. Hello, it's us again uh, with an update with our lives. Uh, Ellie, how are you? I'm very well. Uh, this week I have been writing a lot about death. I've been writing about Lil Peep, who is an emo rapper who very tragically overdosed on Xanax in 2017 and um, a documentary about his life has just come out. So I've written a 3,000 word piece on that and it was very moving. You look exhausted. If I say so myself. I am. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of emo rap over the last week and my colleagues had to tell me to turn it down. I mean, that's your usual audience. (laughs) What have you been doing? Um, What have I been doing? I find it quite hard to think. Well, that's what I'm usually like. yeah, no, I, I closed another magazine piece, which is why I'm in a bit of a, uh, a sort of zoned out mode. Um, big story for 1843 about a th- subject we're not allowed to mention, uh, the Alps. Oh my God. Um, Move on. Uh, so that's out of the end of the month, which is very exciting. Who were you pitching this morning in your coffee when you weren't, when you didn't allow me to sit yeah, next to you and I have to go and... Times. Oh. Um, so we'll see about that. Uh, yeah, but otherwise I've been good. Uh, I'm travelling for a magazine piece next week. Um, to? To Stafford. Very glamorous. Oh. Um, and Where's Stafford? It's in the countryside, I think. Um, outside of London. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. Please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and also, uh, you can find us on social media. I just realized you can't rate and review and subscribe on Spotify. Yeah, you really but just rate, review around. and subscribe on, on Apple. Uh, please also tweet us at Take Notes Always or find us on Instagram at Always Take Notes. It's broadcast gold, Ellie. Cool. Uh, thank you. Thank and you. Goodbye.